Hello and welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This episode that you're about to hear is part one of a two-part episode of Nick and I talking through the AMA questions that we got through the month of July and August. Uh, It ended up getting long, about an hour and a half, so we're going to split this episode in two. So the first chunk of questions that are primarily from his sermons in July, we're going to answer in the first part of this, and then we'll get into some other questions in part two. So hope you like it. Everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm one of the hosts here on the podcast, and I'm joined by Nick Gibson. I'm here and always, always intimidated by John's fabulous radio voice. Great. Um, so we're going to be doing AMA questions today. We have a long list of AMA questions to get to, so... We're going to, th- I think Nick is giving himself I, a little bit yeah. of a timer. Yeah, this time. gonna, and I'd like to start with a public apology about my poor time management that has led to this backlog of questions. <laughs> yeah, we've got, we've got, I mean, thankfully, they're only through the beginning of July, so it could be worse. We could be back two months instead of just a month and a half. That's one way to look at life for sure. Right. right. All right, let's do it. So we're going to jump in. Um, let's just start from the top. So your sermon that you preached on uh on july 4th was on the sufficient beauty of salvation and in that one of the things you talked about was what an evangelical is so i think this question is related to that so how can we explain and convince people we know that evangelicals are not what we have been defined as in the media and in political circles yeah so there's a couple things i would say The, the first thing is that sadly um there are a lot of the evangelical tense is a wide one because it's defined so um generally so if you believe in christ believe in scripture and believe that um that the word of christ should be proclaimed to all and all must choose whether or not to believe in it that covers a pile of people including people who are exactly what the media says they are so part of the issue is is the sample bias and all that so there's a couple things the first is i'd say is speak up like if you're private about it, you don't say anything, you let people just slander whoever they want, mm-hmm. um, nothing's going to happen. Two, and this is, might be the most important one, is um, really try not to live up to their expectations. Right. Um, right. I, I, I generally think undermining people's stereotypes is a great way to go. Now, that is one way that people manipulate us is they try to make a list of stereotypes so complete that they can control us if we just don't want to live up to what they say we are. So you have to both not live up to their stereotypes and also transgress their requirements at the same time, mm-hmm. which can be a little difficult, right? Um, the third is um, is that we need to be engaged in the cultural dialogue. I mean, um, evangelicals have to get involved in talking publicly. And um, one of the ways you can do that is lend your support voice-wise to evangelicals that are public and spokespeople that you think are good as opposed to ones that are bad. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of YouTubers, there's a lot of preachers, there's a lot of people who are Christian leaders who are evangelicals. And by magnifying those people's voices rather than others, um, we could have a better evangelical voice. Part of the reason why some evangelicals we wish didn't have a voice do is because so many people support them. Yeah. You know, which totally. and the sad thing means there are a lot of evangelicals like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important to remember that evangelicals 
um, are in some, in, depending on some measures, are predominantly white and they are predominantly rural because American revivalism um, like worked out that way in the history of America. And so because of that, um, a lot of people who are evangelical are also within demographics that are feeling like they're the new minority, that they're embattled and they're like politically mm-hmm. disliked and disfavored at this present time. And when people feel disenfranchised, and I know for some people like, well, what do you say? White people feel disenfranchised? Yes. Yes. In fact, we're kind of in a place right now in America where like just about everybody feels disenfranchised for fairly valid reasons. Right. And it's because people are like claw scraping and scratching for the franchise and everybody's Mm -hmm. fighting for it. Nobody really has it in a way. We all kind of have grabbed different parts of it. And so everybody kind of feels disenfranchised. And when people get are disenfranchised, they, they are prone to choose the worst leaders. Yeah. And so we have to we have to in Christ overcome our animal spirits and deliberately choose people who we do think can fight for us, but will fight for us in ways that are moral and that are excellent and that are honorable. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do that, then we will be rightly, we won't even be slandered, we'll be rightly despised. Yeah. Yeah. That's three minutes. Boom. Excellent. Excellent work, Nick. Excellent work. Uh, this second question is um, talking about some family dynamics. So, uh, longer question, but I think it I think it's applicable to multiple different situations. So this question says, my mom is not a believer and she's extremely critical and judgmental, like no one can live up to her expectations. She shares faults of those around her freely. And this is really draining for me to be around and dampers my mood as well. Should I say anything to her? And how would I address this when she isn't concerned about sin or sanctification? Since, as it said in the beginning, she's not a believer. And so this isn't something that she's worried about. Yeah. The answer is no. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so this is this is a much more pastoral question, and it's not a super easy answer straight away, especially without me asking more questions. Um, because there's some people who ask this question who can take the pressure, angst, and anxiety of like facing a mom like this, and others yeah. who won't do very well with it at all. So there's there are a few different approaches that you can take, um, and that's what I would say. So if you are not mm-hmm. the kind of person who could take a lot of stress over this, just you just don't handle conflict well and so on, and this isn't where you want to get better at it, um, you might just broach it once and simply say um, what you think and say, I just don't want to participate. Say, just say um, out of re- both about spiritual, religious, and moral conviction and personal desire. I don't want to, I don't, and I'm not going to participate in this kind of talk. Yeah. So if you talk this way, I'm just going to leave mm-hmm. or I'm going to say, mom, I don't want to talk about this um, or something and then just do that. And then say, if our visits are, if my visits with you or my talks with you are, are colored by this kind of thing, there's going to be fewer of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. the other is to take a constant approach and just say, listen, mom, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to participate in it. And I, and, and every time you start this, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I won't do this. Um, another is to try to persuade her that uh, this is a fault, whether she's a believer or not. Right. That this is not a good human practice and that it, uh, it leads her away from love. It objectifies and dehumanizes other people by treating other people the way that she wouldn't treat herself and that it causes her to lose respect for her mom and it causes her, her child pain. Yeah. And that, she hopes that she loves her enough and loves herself enough to do something differently. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a number of ways that you could go after this. Um, 
if you're a believer and you're hoping to lead her to faith, whether or not broaching this is up to you, right? Yeah. So like if I've told her about Jesus and she just doesn't want to listen, then sometimes broaching some of her most objectionable sins makes sense because um, you have to create some kind of existential conflict in order to make the gospel an issue. And if the gospel is not its own issue in that person's mind, then sometimes broaching something that she should be able to see is bad, mm -hmm. um, even outside of biblical and, and Christian categories um, could be helpful. But you th but in doing so, you need to show love for her and a, a desire for her good. She needs to feel like when you're talking to her, you care about her, yeah. even if it costs you. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's always the baseline. And that's hard to do with a mother. It's even harder to do with an in-law. Right. Right now. And yeah, so I think I think helpful takeaways from that is just because she isn't a believer doesn't mean you can't have a conversation about a fault. I think I think it's easy right. to like get into this just sort of like ideological divide between like, OK, I can I can talk to believers about these things. But if people aren't believers like, well, they aren't Christians. So how can I expect them to act virtuous at all? And so I'm going to write off any right. possible conversations that way. But I, th I think what that does is actually prevents like more distance between Christians and non-Christians because we're not broaching those conversations at all. And yeah, everybody has an ethical system because everybody right. wants to believe they're a good person. Right. And so, um, there usually is a way to, to cross that bridge. So, uh, related question to that last one is, uh, how do we balance the need to surround ourselves with other Christians who are good influences while also embracing quote unquote toxic people? Yeah, I, I'd keep uh, toxic people under 18% of your total acquaintances and friendship groups. <laughs> so yeah. as long as you've got that proportion good, then you're, yeah, you're, you're yeah. good to go. Um, one of the early authors on bonding, who also had a chapter on friendship group theory, uh, it, that's not its technical name, but it's the idea of like how we tend to bond in groups in a healthy way, said that most of us have like an inner circle of five or six people and then in a quaint kind of a, a, a friendship circle of like 15, it's a little larger. And then it goes out from there like 50 to 120. Most people, um, relationships beyond 120 are, are pretty abstract. They're not mm -hmm. very personalized relationships. And that's one of the reasons why people say that democracy is just like naturally inhuman relative to human beings because we can't really imagine ourselves in relationship networks larger than about a large tribe. Anyway, the point is, is that I generally don't want somebody that I would consider highly extra grace required mm. or certainly not toxic in, um, in that inner circle. Yeah. So, um, so let me just, let me just define this. Um, an extra grace required an EGR person is somebody who is, they just take extra grace to be around. They're just kind of difficult to be around. They're not really toxic. Dare I say there's extra grace required. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it just takes a little bit more, but, but they're not like, they're not killing you. Like they're not, yeah. and they're, they're not evil. Right. Yeah. When I think of a toxic person, I think of somebody who isn't what the book of Proverbs calls a fool, but what the Proverbs, book of Proverbs calls the evil man. Right. Like somebody who just doesn't really care about the ethical classification of their behaviors and does whatever they pragmatically think is good or useful yeah. or whatever. And because of that, they tend to have highly negative habits that have like poisonous effects on other people. That's why we call them toxic. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, generally speaking, but, but generally speaking, I would want to say, OK, if you use the word toxic, you need to ask yourself the question, is this person foolish and dumb? 
and ought to be better than this, but that the but that you can. I, I think the question is, uh, are you vaccinated? Mm. Like, is there in your character a sufficient barrier that that person's contagion isn't going to affect you? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which reminds me of uh, a scripture in Galatians. I think it's in chapter six rather than five, but it might be in chapter five where the apostle Paul says um, to help other people, but to be careful lest you be tempted. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the things he says, his category is not how bad is another person. Yeah. His category is we want, we should want to get in there in other people's lives and help them. The issue is to what extent is the nature of their sin and the nature of the way you would have to help them mm-hmm. going to affect you relative to your temptations. Yeah. Does that make sense? And so yeah. that's how I would, that's how I regard it. So that there, there might be some people that some people would call toxic that I wouldn't get involved in their lives. And then other people that I have a good vaccination against what's wrong with them where mm-hmm. I might. Yeah. Does that make sense? But yeah. I want to make sure that I definitely have extra grace required people in my life. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, there's a guy that I've done some stuff with to help him with this farmer who has a, a version of Asperger's. He doesn't have good social boundaries. He says crazy stuff. He like, he like will raise meat chickens and just like out of the blue, expect me to help him sell them. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> try to, try yeah. to sell me a motorcycle randomly. Yeah. Right. Right. And, but he's not toxic. Right. But if I let him do whatever he wants in my life, it could have a toxic effect. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, it's my responsibility to have a certain boundary with him because he's got Asperger's. He's just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Right. And I need to be like, look, I'm not doing that. Right. Yeah. Take it or leave it. So um, I need to be able to handle that. But there might be other people in life that I think are sinister. Mm-hmm. I won't let them in at all. If I think that they are evil in that sense, and that's what I mean by toxicity, I don't think you have a responsibility to offer fellowship to people like that. Yeah. Frankly. And I think, I think it's okay to just tell them, but in most cases I wouldn't because they're going to come after you. Mm-hmm. I think you just like, you stay away from those people unless you have, you need to help others fight them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, so when we use it, but the problem, one of my issues is, and I'll end with this, you have to distinguish between people who are hurt, who are, who are just stupid. Like, so what the Bible calls the simple person Mm-hmm. The person who doesn't have a lot of cognitive ability and is screwing up their life because they just don't know what to do. The fool, the person who should know better, but doesn't because they've been bad. They've just been an idiot. And, but like they could be helped if you enter their life in a certain kind of way, yeah. the poor, right. Um, in, in the Bible, it is not assumed that the poor are poor only just because of sheer misfortune. Right. Mm-hmm. It's assumed that like often they're going to be less capable people. The poor are often less capable people. And yet they deserve to be treated well and helped, right? Yeah. And you might not want them in your life, but you need to have them in your life. You need to help them. Mm-hmm. All that's different than what the Bible calls the evil man yeah. who is who is going to hurt you. And that person you don't have an ethical responsibility to offer fellowship to. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so now we're going to jump into some questions from... Uh, the sermon called Jesus Cares About Your Mental Health, where we talked a little bit about what was going on with uh, our youth pastor here at, here at High Point. Um, so some of the questions from that, the first question is, what are your thoughts on when someone has anxiety or depression and someone else says, just be closer to God? I think you can insert any simplistic spiritual <laughs> aphorism. Right. 
Yeah. Um, so just to clarify the, the passage from Galatians I was referring to earlier is Galatians 6.1. All right. So, okay. My thoughts, somebody has anxiety, depression. Someone says be closer to God. Um, I, so I want to do two things with that. The first is I want to acknowledge that in a lot of cases, a version of that could actually be correct. Mm-hmm. There are some forms of anxiety in particular and some forms of depression, though not very many, I wouldn't think, that are in some ways that in some ways could be highly spiritually medicated by somebody pursuing God in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So for example, if I spend 15 minutes in prayer at the beginning of my day, I tend to have less anxiety. Mm-hmm. I have to have zero physical symptoms of anxiety. I, I have a fairly um, anxious and sensitive temperament, right? And because I have a leadership position, I have a sensitive or anxious temperament and I'm highly disagreeable. Mm-hmm. Those that mix just like wants to create a depressed, anxious, <laughs> melancholy human, right? Right. And so, um, but what I find is, is that if Entry I create into conflicts that stress you out, right, yeah. right, yeah, and I and I and I just am prone to disagree with people yeah. and just not go along with things if I don't agree with them, right? So, um, however, if I do honestly pray and I let the Lord bring up in my heart what is bothering me, what I'm afraid of, what I'm mm-hmm. feeling like really negative about because it's a conflict in my life and I get my heart right before God. What's my job? What isn't my job? What do I need to trust to God? What is my calling? All those kinds of things. Um, and then I pray and ask for God's help and so on. Um, I don't have any anxiety symptoms. And if I don't do that for long enough, I do. Mm -hmm. So what I know is in order for me to be sort of healthy, like my anti-anxiety workout includes prayer which draws me closer to god and i am closer to god when i do it right so in one sense there are some versions of anxiety and depression that a version of just be closer to god i don't know if anybody who just says just but like be right. closer to god could be correct right mm-hmm. but the, the way i would approach it is this if somebody pr- gave me those symptoms right i would start to i would go i would try to dig a little deeper like why they think they're feeling this way what they think is causing this and so on. Right. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, people are, don't know very well. They're not very well connected to it. And in order to work with somebody well in that kind of a situation, I think that it's a little bit more experience and wisdom for spiritual care is very helpful. Yeah. So I would also ask them on like a scale of one to 10, what was the intensity of their anxiety and depression? Mm -hmm. I'd also ask them if they can tell me anything about its provenience, like how it came about. And how long yeah. they've been feeling this way and how much it's intensified over the last three or four months. Right. Yeah. And I, and be, partly because if, um, for obviously there's lots of reasons, but like there, there are, if, if I think that, the, that the anxiety and depression is becoming unmanageable, then oftentimes that it's really helpful if they can talk to a counselor and sometimes even take some kind of medication, at least for a little while. Yeah. Um, the, our goal though, is to get people to be honest with us about anxiety and depression before it's overwhelming so that they can do things about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause generally, but, but generally speaking, generally speaking, a lot of the treatments that are part of counseling are very similar to spiritual disciplines. This is one of the conversations mm-hmm. I've been working on with um, one of our counselors who is really into certain neurologically based treatments Yeah, is I'm trying to figure out what this, how some of these treatments mirror other human healing activities Hmm. or whether or not these counselors believe that 
these new th- new therapies that have been developed are the only thing that can humans can do to be healed from certain things, which I find I'm skeptical about that. I'm not saying I totally disagree and I know it, but I am skeptical about it. So um, I think that that's, that's kind of important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say as a Christian, don't say that when people say they're anxious and depressed, but right. I would say um, you, you could say something like this. Do you think that your relationship with the Lord and the kinds of spiritual disciplines and spiritual pursuits that he enjoins or encourages in this Bible are doing all they can in your favor yeah. relative to the things that are causing your anxiety and depression Yeah. as a question to them. I don't think that's dismissive if you ask it with some kindness, mm-hmm. but I also, yeah, I don't think throwing a, a, a parroted spiritual aphorism at people who are hurting is generally a good idea, whether it's anxiety, depression or anything else. Right. You right. know, Th- that's one of the things everybody struggles with is, taking people's problems seriously enough that you really listen and interact with them and not taking them so emotionally seriously that you lose your nerve to actually tell them the truth, even if that truth is hard. And people who want to be the kind of person who's willing to tell other people the hard truth, that's great. So long as it's combined with considerable wisdom, Mm -hmm. you know, um, next question is how do you make use of mental health professionals expertise without ignoring the underlying causes that they don't consider? I think some of this is, is related to like in the sermon, you talked about how, you know, demon possession is like an extreme forge, extreme form of a mental health problem. And like, like just that there are, there are oftentimes other things going on spiritually besides just, okay, I have this neurological condition that I need to rewire in order to solve my problem. Yeah. So a a few things. So, yeah, I think that there are two places where, so uh, let me say, be honest with a couple things right up front. I think that the mental health profession, as well as the social work profession, a number of the help, the helping professions um, I believe that they're in the state of ideological chaos at the moment. Hmm. Uh, maybe not ideal, not really chaos. Um, possession. Yeah, I, I think that they have been possessed by a, a number of ideologies that are creating fruitful research in some areas and entirely limiting their vision in others, leading to true and highly imbalanced ways of pursuing human mental health. Hmm. And so I think it's producing some good results in terms of what can be done with things like pharmaceuticals or certain kinds of neurology-based therapies. And yet I think that it's assume, it's it's recognizing that much less is uh, – there's much less focus on spiritual disciplines and how people can change themselves and what responsibility we have to do so. And I think it's kind of in moral freefall because – Um, therapy is no longer connected with morality or spirituality. Whereas for a couple thousand years in the West, at least oftentimes spirit, you know, um, personal counsel was connected to spiritual counsel and you, Mm -hmm. you couldn't, you couldn't imagine that you would give somebody pastoral counsel that was unhinged from spiritual advice that had moral categories. So, so now you can go to a counselor and say, I want to do X, Y, Z and X, Y, Z can have no moral, can be immoral. Right. Right. And you can still pursue that. Right now, some councils would say, "Well, I don't think it'll make you happy or something," but um, it's it's often opportunity within the moral framework. So, I'm not a big fan of the idea ideological bases of some of the helping fields right now. I would also yeah. say that that problem is also true in a lot of pastoral and theological stuff. 
There's still a lot of theological fundamentalism that doesn't treat the human person as complex as we are or as or the the image of God in us as deep as it is or the aspects of the curse and depravity as deep as they are. And that simplistic theology, I think, leads to um, very, very bad advice and spiritual care relative to things that we call mental health. So I, I, I don't I wouldn't exonerate my profession either. Yeah. Right. So in the midst of all that difficulty, what do you do? And then there's two areas where mental health counselors can be helpful, especially psychiatrists. The first is, is that if a mental health symptom is overwhelming, I think sometimes medication can be helpful in the short term. Mm-hmm. Now, I also think sometimes it's helpful in the long term too, but I think in more cases it's helpful in the short term. Um, so sometimes I do encourage Christians to consider taking antidepressant or something like that for a short period of time. And yeah. when by short, I mean like three to six months, maybe a year. Okay, not three weeks. The reason I say that is because um, in most cases, I don't think a chemical imbalance is the problem. Right. Um, In most cases, I think it is a worldview problem, a lifestyle problem, a character problem, a lots of things problem, a habits problem. And and usually it's multiple of those things piled up. Oftentimes, it also has to do with the other thing I think mental health professionals can be good on is dealing with what we would call clinically induced wounds. So like something going on in your personality, your character um, that is present as a neurological phenomenon, like it happened, like you have these reactions, right, in how you're, you're embodying yourself, but they come from previous experiences and the, and the interpretations you carry from those previous experiences, right, from like your childhood or from early schooling or something like that, that were very, very negative and hard to rewrite. I do think that there is some clinical wisdom that can help us rewrite those things. And I think that in those two cases, um, mental health professionals can be very helpful if, but here's the thing, just like in any profession like carpentry, mm-hmm. there are numerous mental health professionals that are immoral and incompetent. Yeah. Like if you go out and you hire a carpenter, there are piles of people who won't show up for work, they'll do a bad job, they will take mm-hmm. your money, they won't end up building what you wanted them to, they're terrible at their job, but that's the job that they do. That is also true in the mental health profession. Don't think that licensing makes people competent. It does not. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and like teaching, I actually think mental health professionals are often good because they are, um, because they're insightful and because they have gifts. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So, uh, I think that that's important. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I could say a lot more about that, but I, I would say those two areas are, are helpful. And um, just like past, and when I what everything, every negative thing I say about counselors could be said about pastors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I right. probably got, I probably became a pastor instead of a counselor. Not because I thought there were lots of fantastic pastors and bad counselors. I became a pastor because I thought the problem in pastoring was even worse. Mm-hmm. Can Christians be demon possessed? My answer is going to be very unsatisfying to this. It is, I wouldn't think so. But I can't prove that's not <laughs> the case. I think that the logic that um, he who the Holy Spirit indwells cannot be indwelt by a devil makes sense. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of propositions like that that make sense that I know are false. Yeah. And so I I would think that but, – but here's what I do think I know is that people who I do believe are converted and believers are profoundly controlled by demonic power. Hmm. And I don't think it's just deception. I think it includes a spiritual affectation. 
And so some Christians have said, well, there's a difference between being demon oppressed and demonically possessed. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's a perfect distinction. I can't hardly tell the difference when I'm working with somebody who I think has either of those conditions. So to, to me, the distinction doesn't really help. Yeah. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say either. Um, so I, I am very sympathetic to the idea that Christians can't be demon possessed, but I am also sympathetic to the idea that that might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Doesn't normalizing mental health issues to this degree. So I assume that means kind of in our current cultural moment to this degree, fail to acknowledge the magnitude of Christ's power and the completeness of healing he offers. Or maybe, okay. yeah, I'm maybe assuming I'm assuming that that's relative to the sermon. Right, right. I actually think that's relative to the sermon. Yeah. And my answer is probably yes. Because I, I mean, you know, you got 45 minutes for a sermon and nuancing everything does not happen Mm -hmm. as much as you would like. And so I think by trying to affirm people with mental health issues and where they're at and, and how th- this can exist in the presence of Christ and all that. Um, the, the opposite unnuanced liability can easily be achieved, which mm-hmm. is the belief that we, we can't overcome these things. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yep. Totally. Yep. Um, I think the most, yeah. So I mean, but, but I, I mean, I could tell you that after that service, I had one, one believer came up to me, for example, who said, I had a number of people said stuff to me, but one lady said, listen, I've been struggling with depression on and off for 35 years. I think it's like a temperamental issue for me. And I, I do all the spiritual disciplines. Like I feel like I possibly can. And, um, I still am in and out of it. And just for you to acknowledge that under the curse, these things happen and that we fight mm-hmm. them. We never stop fighting. And, um, was so therapeutic for me. She said in tears, just like, yeah. just to be seen like that. So I, I think that, yes, I agree with yeah. that person. What, I, what they're saying, I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I also don't want to tell a person who's struggling with something like healing is available right now, such that you'll never experience this again. Mm-hmm. And like there, you know, there are versions of, of Christian healing doctrine that I, I are false also. You know, um, and I don't, so, so yeah, I mean, yes, Christians exist between the cross and the, and glory. The Holy spirit brings the first fruits of healing and enables us to go through the, under the curse process of being hated and martyred. That's mm-hmm. also the spirit's work. And you don't, you just, I mean, first Corinthians 12 explicitly says the spirit does what he wants as he pleases. And for some of us that is healing for others of us in many of us, it's to bear our sufferings well. And in many, in some cases, being healed exhibits the glory of God. In other cases, being healed is something people use to be flippant, to get about sin and to fall into damnation. Mm-hmm. And then in some cases, bearing our suffering crushes people and they walk away from the faith and they hate God. In other cases, us bearing our suffering is what makes our faith in the long run and leads others to faith too. Yeah. And so the, the fact is, is that only God sovereignly knows the appropriate application of healing and of empowering in suffering. Mm-hmm. rather than releasing from suffering. Yeah. And so I, I think both of those have to be discussed as we discuss the gospel in the church. Mm-hmm. But yes. So, I mean, part of that answer is yes. Anytime you say something 
you can it is easy to assume like right with an unnuanced version of it you can assume the other side of it but you have to say something and so mm-hmm. yeah yeah john piper said this was one time in an essay let's not assume that what i i've said what i didn't say mm-hmm. right so i would i would like that same grace i think everybody right. deserves that <laughs> We'd like that stamp before every sermon. Yeah. But I could have preached a sermon on, hey, God can heal you from your mental health issues. Yeah. And there is a version of that sermon I would preach. Yeah. I, that's just not the one I chose to preach at that moment. Yeah. Um, last question from this sermon. And I, I, I think this is helpful in kind of working towards self-diagnosis or like self, self-understanding just some tools for that. So it feels as if I've been in a funk now for months and everyone keeps telling me it'll pass. So I'm trying to continue with life and just wait, but things aren't getting better, but worse. I have less joy and motivation to do anything. And my spiritual walk has been affected as well. I struggle with depression and anxiety, but my friends seem to think that what I'm going through isn't that serious. How can I tell if they're right or if things are more serious? I think only you can know if you have pursued with any kind of meaningfully meaningful discipline, the kinds of things that would naturally alleviate certain versions of your condition, mm-hmm. right? So if you have the kind of anxiety slash depression that does yield to spiritual discipline and certain social practices and so on that can lift us out of these things, you have really been doing them and it's not been working, right? Yeah. I think that that's worth paying attention to and it's worth considering whether or not something more might be needed. I think that, um, people tend to minimize the psychological pain and stress of other people naturally. I remember a few years ago, my wife said that she was feeling depressed during the winter, that she had she had like a, like winter blues. And like I did some things that were supportive. But in the end, after she'd gotten better, she's like, you had really – I don't think you had any idea how deep this was for me. Hmm. And I think that's probably true because we're busy living in, each other, in our own world rather than each other's. And I, I think that that can often be the case. So only you know. And so I think if you think that it's getting worse rather than better and that it's worse than other people probably think. Yeah. It's better. It's better to get help sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. You don't want to wait until you're suicidal or you're cutting yourself or you are like binge eating and bulimic or like, like coping in some very health detrimental way. And that you don't have hardly any time left before you do something very rash. Like you, you want to get in there where you still have some tolerances, like so, some room to move and some time for treatment if that's necessary. So I think especially if you know your trajectory is getting worse, I would say get help. Yeah. Even if it's from like just a mentor or something. And, and then if that doesn't help, then get a different help or more mm-hmm. help. And, it, and I'd keep, I'd keep going. Um, if things are getting slightly better or you don't think they're getting worse, then then maybe you're okay. But um, if you if it seems to be going on and on and on, then, I mean, get help, yeah. I would say, in yeah. some form or another. So let's move to um, some questions from a couple weeks later. So these, these questions are coming from uh, the sermon that you preached on August 1st called the danger and dynamic of false prophets. And in the sermon you gave um, a couple examples of false prophecy kind of in our, in our current moment. So a couple questions related to that. So for false prophets who are convinced of their perspective, are Christians called to try and change their mind 
or should they just not act on their quote unquote teachings? That's a little ambiguous as to what your like the relationship is to them. Um, yeah, sure. I don't, I think if you are convinced somebody's a false prophet, you shouldn't sit under their teachings at all. Mm-hmm. So if you think the pastor of your church is a false prophet, I think you should go to another church. I think that if, um, the, the person is literally working through the gift of prophecy at your church. So they're not like the pastor or something, but they're constantly telling things that are false prophecies. Uh, and the elders don't do anything about it. And that person is leading and teaching. I think that I would consider not participating in a church that's allowing a false prophet to, prophet to operate consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I want to give too much more direction than that. Yeah. I, I do think that it's the, the scripture says it's the job of elders to refute false teaching and that that's a qualification of elders. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say that every Christian should be able to do that. And I think that's very realistic. And so I think if you know teaching is bad, you should move away from it. And I think if you're going to be an elder, you better be prepared to refute it. But if you can refute it, I think it's great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this is, again, would you say that that, that is dependent on your relationship with them? Like, like I guess in in what sort of relational context would it be appropriate to to try and refute it? Like let's say somebody who you don't really know, but who is teaching in your church is teaching a class. Is that something that you refute should you should refute? Or if it's obviously if it's somebody who you're closer with who's teaching, who then you can pull aside afterwards and be like, hey man, listen, I don't think what you're saying is right. Yeah, I think for the most part, the, the concept of prophecy in the relevant text refers to a, the public expression of truths. Yeah. So this would be kind of like, this wouldn't be just somebody who had, like, has a bad idea. I, that's not a false prophet. Just like a heretic, a heretic is a false teacher, not a false believer. Yeah. You can believe something that's wrong, you're not a heretic. So when you teach something and you won't be corrected about it, that you become a heretic. Mm-hmm. And um, so a false prophet is somebody who prophesies publicly to others is wrong. It's demonstrably wrong and they won't be corrected. Yeah. And in that case, I think there should be church discipline. Yeah. Frankly. But I also, I don't want to say to every Christian that it's your responsibility to refute a false prophet because I don't think it right. is. Right. Next question is, if both major political parties have philosophies that Christians shouldn't embrace fully, should Christians claim to quote unquote belong to a political party at all? I don't think Christians should probably belong to either party in the hardcore sense. But I, th- I think that um, belonging to one as to in terms of being the member of a party, mm-hmm. I think is fine uh, personally. I think, and I think the main reason for that is I think that it's very difficult to have any influence in a party that you're not a member of. I think that for the Democrats yeah. to be influenced by Christians, there would have to be Christians who are Democrats. And I think if there's going to be, if the Republican party is going to be influenced, there has to be Republicans that are Christians. Mm-hmm. And so I think even if it's, even if it's like, look, I agree with this party more than the other, mm-hmm. but man, I want to reform this party as much as I can. I think that's the nature of political party belonging. And I don't think that we should just backload all of the ideas about complicity that modern wokeness has into our understanding of belonging to different groups. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think you can belong to a group that you think is profoundly flawed. Right. And if you, if you can't, then I don't think you should belong to anything that has humans in it. And so maybe, so it could maybe be even important in our current, in our current cultural moment to belong to things that you don't agree fully with in order to display 
hey, I can belong to a group that I have big problems with, but is still worth belonging. Yeah, I think it's necessary. Yeah. Because otherwise you abdicate to the 6% of the population that are extremists. Right. Um, Honestly, John, I think like for me, mm -hmm. 60%, 50% of leadership is just standing in the way of extremists and saying you can't have the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. I I mean, honestly, like they're punching you, you're elbowing them in the face. No, you can't have the steering wheel. That's like 50% of leadership. Yeah. So... Yeah, I believe that. And if you don't join a political party, guess who's going to run them? Guessing extremists. Yep. Yeah. Let's move on to this uh, now. These questions now are from your sermon, not this most recent Sunday, but the Sunday before that, um, talking about God's two expressions of his will. So you talked a little bit about how um, we should pursue God's revealed will. And for the most part, leave God's secret will to himself, that we should be pursuing his revealed will first. Um, one of these questions says, as we intently pursue God's revealed will, is there a righteous way that a sincere Christian can or should also be pursuing his secret will? Yes and no. I think as you pursue his revealed will, mm-hmm. relative to the providences of your life, meaning given who you are, what skills you have, how old you are, what, what your human capital is, what your choices are, what lays in front of you, all of that. You make choices and you do, you do A instead of B. You do some things and not other things based on the possibilities in front of you. When you do that, you are by definition already seeking out God's secret will. Mm. Right? Now, I don't think that's what the questioner means. Mm-hmm. I think what the questioner means is, is there any way we can get a printout like God right. to just tell us what his secret will is. Right. And can we do that? And the answer is yes, you can, but you should prepare to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. You can pray and ask God for him to just tell you, you can pursue a prophetic word in a way you can go to places where people operate in that gift. But I, I would expect God in most cases to not say anything. Mm-hmm. And one, and some of the big reasons for that is, is that if you did don't know that you made a decision, when things get hard, you're much more prone to blame whoever you think made the decision. Yeah. yeah. Rather than take responsibility for making the decision into the right decision. Mm-hmm. So like if you, if you're dating somebody and like you, if, and then you go, oh, oh, and then you're like, oh, God wants me to marry that person. Okay, great. That might, that might encourage you to marry that person. But what happens when your marriage isn't going well? Right. Then you're kind of like, God well, made could, me marry this person. Right. <laughs> it's his fault. He should fix this. Yeah. And the answer is No. You made this decision. You need to take responsibility for your decision, you and your wife, and you need to sort out what's wrong. And you need to, you need to realize that God's revealed will right now is for you to have a good marriage and he, and to do what's necessary to get there. So I think one of the reasons why God, I think, doesn't tell us what to do in most cases. And by that, I mean like 99.9999% of cases Mm -hmm. is because it's actually necessary for our spiritual growth. Yeah. Our spiritual trials and testing, how that forms godliness in us and so on. Um, because we're not supposed to run after the Holy Spirit's word about our future lives. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to pursue Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Yeah, And we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to throw off what hinders us, that is distracts us and holds us back, and the sin that entangles us, mm-hmm. and run with perseverance after Christ. Yeah, And that is sufficient to know the race we're running. 
Does that make sense? And so yeah. in addition to that, yeah, we, you know, we have to pick one thing rather than another. Mm-hmm. But no, so I, so I think you can pursue God's will. You can ask him to show it to you in different ways. But even when people say, I realized this was God's will, what they mean is, is that they read the providences that laid before them and they assumed, like when I came to, to High Point Church, I'd been looking for a position for 14 months and something that was better than almost anything I'd looked at for me became available. And it was the only church in America that wanted to hire me. Now, usually it's not that obvious, <laughs> but I no, but no one ever, I didn't hear from God, so to speak, that I was supposed mm-hmm. to come to high point, but gosh, it sure looked like I was supposed to come to high point. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, similarly, when I went to Florida, it was like the only church in America that was interested in me. So like that was the clear will of God for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I married Alexi, I did it because I loved her more and, and, and she was be- she was better to me than any of the other girls I had any opportunity with. And I wanted her to be my wife. Yeah. So, you know, 16 months later, seven months later, when we hated each other's guts, I didn't go, oh, God, why did you make me marry this woman? <laughs> right. I was like, shoot, I married this woman. I chose her and I need to get along with her. Now I need to do something about this. Right. Yeah. God may help yeah. me, but this is my responsibility. Yeah. So that's what I would say that. This is, uh, so this is a question that I personally have. Um, so I'm going to throw it in here with the AMA questions is what do you, um, cause I've heard this a lot and heard it used a lot. What do you think about, cause I think this can be used in sort of reading the providences, but what do you think about quote unquote open doors pursuing of God's secret will? When people say like, you know, I'm just going to try and walk through open doors. And if a door is closed, I'm going to turn somewhere else. And if a door is open, I'm going to go through it. What do you think about that method of discerning where you should head? I'm just super glad William Wibbleforce didn't use that method. <laughs> right. When the door was slammed in his face for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a handout that I have of finding God's will and, and on the open. So one of the things is looking for opportunities, right? Which includes what we call open doors. And, and I say open doors or doors that open with appropriate effort. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, for example, if you ask out a girl once mm-hmm. and she says no, is she a closed door forever? What if six months later you've demonstrated something about your competence as a man and she seems interested in you? Mm-hmm. Can you ask her out again? Or is it a closed door? Right. Right. Or you're like, well, it's closed until it's open. You know? Mm-hmm. So, so I would say... As a metaphor, I'm generally open to it mm-hmm. because you can't go through closed doors. You need to do something. So sometimes what's available is you got to pick something. So go right. through one of the open doors. Right. I'm for that. Yes. At the same time, like, I think it can be an anti-persistence metaphor, which I'm I'm completely against. Right. Right. You know, so it, it like, I, I mean, I'm a, I've been a pastor for 10 years in a secular city, a church that's grown. I don't know how many open doors there were that I didn't have to push open. Right. You know? Like, <laughs> right. So right. anyway, I, it's, so it's a good metaphor and a terrible one, yeah. depending on what you mean by it. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah. I, I tend to think of it as a terrible metaphor. So that's helpful. The, the parts of it that are useful. I think that's good to, that's at least good for me to hear. idea or a question you'd like answered.
answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.